Welcome to Space Tool Live. You're listening to the Space Roundup podcast with space experts and astronomers Nick Howes and Terry Mosley. This is a recording of our live show of Season 2, Episode 6, also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor, along with all of Season 1 on the Space Door YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Space Door Live. Well, what a week right. again. <laughs> it's been a good one. Uh, no fake doctors on this show, by the way. Just put, want to put that one out there. Um, it's, been a, it's been a pretty amazing week again in space. Um, there's been lots going on on social media, but we, we won't kind of cover that because there's there's ongoing stories there. Uh, but we are going to cover some of the really interesting stuff that is going on up in space right now. Uh, one of the big ones at the moment uh, that Terry and I have got a big keen interest in uh, for various reasons, and we're going to spend a bit more time on this one, is it's a lot of associated issues. Um, so uh, a joint Anglo um, kind of Japanese and various other nations involved as well um, mission called Elsa D. So any fans of the movie and book Born Free will know that Elsa was the big lion. Uh, this isn't uh, Elsa the lion. This is uh, an on-orbit uh, debris removal system. It's a, it's a technology demonstrator. So this was launched um, out of Kazakhstan on a Soyuz rocket. And the idea is that uh, this satellite uh, comes in two components. So it's got what's called a chaser, which is essentially a satellite that's going to, in the future, we hope at some point, lock on to redundant or defunct satellites. So basically chase after them in space using quite complex orbital dynamics, quite complex thrust maneuvers, etc. And it, it's a really quite neat mission. Uh, on top of that, they've got this little 20 kilogram test mass, as it were, this kind of the, the victim satellite, as it were. And what they're going to do is uh, analyze the satellite, basically approach it, analyze it, uh, image it from various different angles, etc., uh, map it out in great detail, uh, then capture it using magnetic tethers. Now, this is a system that my company were looking at some years ago. Um, we do a lot of work in the defense sector, and it's it's really quite interesting, the, the approach that they're taking. Now, it's clearly not going to work for everything because there are 170 million pieces of debris in Earth orbit right now. So this is an inordinate amount of debris. We've been putting junk up there since the early 1960s uh, that's still up there. I mean, NASA in the, in the early 1960s put up a thing called the Space Needles. They, they tried to fake an ionosphere and put up literally hundreds of thousands of, of pieces of junk just in one go. So the amount of junk is quite inordinate uh, that's up there at the moment. Some of it is things like paint flecks, bits of gloves, old kit bags, you name it, going back to the Gemini. If you remember... Ed White's uh, famous first US astronaut EVA spacewalk. And you can see a glove kind of floating out of the, the Gemini capsule. All of that stuff is still up there. <clears throat> There's so much of it. So solving this debris problem is becoming more and more of an issue. And uh, lots of space companies and space agencies, you know, European Space Agency are putting a lot of effort into you know, how they can mitigate this risk because it's becoming more and more and more of an issue all the time. Um, only this week, and we'll be talking about that in a minute, more satellites have broken up. So the LCD mission, ideally, is this technology demonstrator. Now, whilst I absolutely love the technology behind it and the complexity of the technology, it's not enough. It really isn't. This is a mission that is essentially a, what I call a one-to-one -one mission. So they're going to send up one satellite, which is going to be able to deorbit a piece of junk. Now, potentially in the future, if they use this magnetic tether system, they could have one to maybe a few. But there are, as I said, 170 million pieces of debris in orbit. Right now, there are 3,372 active satellites as of the last count. And that number is increasing all the time. The likes of SpaceX sending up what they call mega constellations. They're launching literally hundreds of satellites at a time. The Indian PSLV is able to launch more than 100 satellites at a time. So you've got SpaceX, you've got OneWeb, which is the UK government-backed thing with SoftBank in, in Japan, where they're planning on anywhere between 650 and 900 satellites for internet and communications, much like Starlink. On top of that, you've then got Amazon's proposed project, where, again, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of satellites in orbit. And then you've got whatever China do and whatever Russia do on top of that. So <clears throat> worst case scenario within the next 10 years, now bearing in mind there are 3,372 satellites active right now in low Earth, medium Earth, and geosynchronous geostationary orbit. That number could increase by a factor of 20. I mean, we could be looking even more. We could be looking at anywhere up to 100,000 satellites in orbit. Now, these things fail all the time, as we're going to talk about in, in a short while. Um, 
Starlink themselves, they've got anywhere between a 2 and 5% recognized known failure rate. Now, the thing with Starlink is the orbits are relatively low in some cases, so they should deorbit quite quickly. But some of these satellites are in quite high orbits and won't deorbit quickly. OneWeb, for example, is not going to deorbit quickly if something goes wrong, any of those satellites. So whilst LCD and the experiments that were done by SSTL sorry, satellites a few years ago with their SpaceNet, which was not a bad idea, the Harpoon, completely stupid idea, um, are admirable, in many respects, it's not going to solve the problem. And the problem is only getting worse. And if we go into our kind of our touch on our next story, as it were, a little bit, which is um, the NOAA UNI breakup. So what you can see there is the kind of image of the LCD, which is a, a really beautiful satellite. And they've you know got quite a lot of mission, mission success already from it in terms of it's deployed. It's deployed its solar panels. The mission control, operations control room is actually based about 30 miles from my house up in a place called Harwell in Oxfordshire, um, which is the space cluster kind of the for the southern region of the UK. It's about 140 companies based up there, and they do have a mission operations control center. So they're running this mission out of the UK, which is absolutely fantastic. However, in the last few days, it's come to light that not one, but two satellites have started to break up in quite high orbits. So one of them is the NOAA-M or NOAA-17 satellite. Now, this is uh, uh, American weather satellite. Um, NOAA satellites, if you've got what's called an SDR rig, which is a software-defined radio system, you can get these for a few dollars. You can pick them off, off, off eBay, plug them into your laptop, connect it up to an aerial, and you can listen in to satellites. You can listen into shortwave, uh, long-wave radio transmissions, satellite transmissions. Uh, there's fantastic software, again, free on the internet that lets you downlink the data from the satellite as well. So you can pull images from these NOAA satellites. So if you're into amateur weather forecasting, you can get images from space onto your laptop, which is really, really quite cool. I do it a lot at home. I've got an SDR rig connected up to this laptop here, um, and I listen into various satellites and get battery statuses, what's called telemetry data, so the kind of health and status of the satellite. And it's great when it's cloudy and you'd think, I need my space fix. I'm going to do that. I'm going to listen I'm going to listen to some satellites. And the noise that they make are, are quite amazing as well when they're passing over and you can hear the Doppler shift. And it, it's all really interesting. So this NOAA satellite has been up for quite some time it's it's gone over its its life expectancy and it was decommissioned something's happened to it in the last week so this once size of an suv satellite so this thing's about 18 feet by 10 feet by eight feet in, in terms of diameters so meters you're looking at about six meters by about three meters kind of size so it's a big satellite so this once whole NOAA satellite is now in 16 trackable pieces. And that's just the trackable ones. We don't know, and I say we, as in, you know, people like ExoAnalytics, NORS, um, Space Fence, NORAD, you know, Celeste Track, all these people who are tracking these uh, debris items up in space and everything that's going on in space can currently track 16, but we don't know if there's more. There could be dozens, there could be hundreds, there could be thousands of pieces coming off this. We just don't know. Now, the orbit on this is 800 kilometers. So this is going to be 150 years before it goes anywhere near to deorbiting. And what's going to happen because of the Earth's gravity, et cetera, is it's going to just orbit and drift down and drown and you get some drag. And all these pieces potentially are going to fly into really crowded areas of space uncontrollably. On top of that, China's satellite, Yunai-102, has also broken up in the last few days. Now, China are normally quite secretive, but obviously with things going on up in space, you can, you know, there's so many organizations. As I said, there's one called ExoAnalytics. They've got 400 telescopes dotted around the world that can image down to magnitude 21. Uh, now, if you don't know what that is, magnitude scales, typically with your eyes, you can see down to about magnitude 6 if you've got a really good dark sky location. If you're out in the middle of the countryside, <clears throat> got really good vision, you can see an object at magnitude six. The magnitude scale is a logarithmic scale. So it, it kind of goes like that. Um, magnitude 21, you're looking at not far short of what the Hubble um, <laughs> is kind of capable of. Magnitude 24, 25, the bigger research telescopes, that's typically what they do. So obviously several tens of thousands of times fainter, but magnitude 21 is still quite significant. And they can image down to about a 10 centimeter, between five and 10 centimeter resolution. And there's 400 of these things. Now they're picking up this Chinese satellite breaking up and the Chinese satellite is currently in 21 pieces. And again, at an 800, 700 to 800 kilometer orbit. So this again is drifting down. Now, if you've seen the movie Gravity, 
with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, and we've talked about this many times, you'll know what's coming next. So <clears throat> there's a thing called the Kessler syndrome. So Don Kessler, about 40 years ago, theorized that we will get to a critical mass of satellites. And at that point, all, all bets are off. You won't be able to launch anything. It's just going to be a complete mess up there. It'll be like M25 motorway, which is a really busy motorway in the United Kingdom at rush hour. Uh, but unfortunately, instead of everything being stationary, everything's moving at eight kilometers per second. And you can't stop something at eight kilometers a second. It's impossible. We have no technology that can do anything about that right now. LCD is going to basically capture a satellite by analyzing its orbit, moving into orbit, matching its velocity, much like, say, the Rosetta spacecraft did with the comet, match the velocity, approach it really slowly, grab it with its magnetic tethers, pull it out of orbit, drop it, it'll burn up harmlessly in the atmosphere. That's fine. Um, if this continues, and it's not when, or it's not if, it's when, um, at some point in, it could be tomorrow, it could be 10 years, it could be 50 years, whatever, but at some point in the future, we're going to be stuck on this planet. We're not going to be launching a thing um, unless we do something really significant about this. Now, what that significant thing is, is regulation to stop companies just chucking up thousands of satellites and they can have the best, what's called station keeping and autonomy, and whatever that they want. Satellites fail. Satellites do fail. And we don't know what junk is up there already. So Whilst the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and all these other people checking up huge constellations can say, oh, we've got autonomous systems that can detect this and we can move this. And there's a, there was an accord drafted this week between NASA and SpaceX to basically say NASA's got right of way. So when you're approaching each other on the road, SpaceX, you're going to move because NASA have got the right of way. Now, whether or not the Chinese or the Russians or any other nation state decides to follow that, who knows? I very much doubt it. But this is a growing massive, massive problem. And I'm just talking about it from the engineering perspective and the debris perspective. I'm going to hand over to Terry now, who's going to tell you all about the hell on earth that's been caused for astronomy. Yeah, actually, I just want to add one thing there. Um, because, I, you know, magnetic catching only works with uh, ferrous metals yeah. and iron is pretty, pretty dense. Most of the stuff up there in space is using aluminium or, or lighter stuff, you know. Yep. So it won't work. The magnetic catch anyway won't work with anything aluminium or plastic for that matter. But anyway, the thing I like about ELSA, it's a very nice little acronym, the End of Life Services by Astroscale, and the day is for demonstration. But the interesting thing about this is it's bringing up its own little satellite that is going to um, capture. So it's already more or less in the same orbit, you know, almost identical orbit. Uh, it's a different uh, thing altogether when you're trying to match something else that's in a totally different orbit. Anyway, yes, uh, the pollution of the night sky is just getting worse and worse and worse with all these satellites. Um, it, it doesn't bother naked eye astronomy all that much because you see the thing passing across the field of view and you can even say, oh, wow, look at that. But for serious astronomy where you're trying to take deep images, of um, the interesting objects in our own galaxy and out to the edge of the universe. There's so much of this stuff now flying around. It's not visible all the time because it's only shining whenever the sun is shining on it. But nevertheless, for a significant part of each night, these things are ruining astronomical imaging. And as you say, Nick, in terms of the other context of the damage and so on, uh, it's just getting worse and worse. And uh, it doesn't really matter whether uh, the there's one piece of uh, debris flying across your field of view or a, a hundred. Uh, they're all going to be uh, ruining the image in terms of, of what you're trying to image. And just going back to the Kistler syndrome, uh, some people have conjectured, and I sometimes think of this myself, that one of the reasons we haven't been visited by aliens is that they're all stuck on their own planets because there's so much debris orbiting that they can't venture right into deep space. Don't tell that to Captain Kirk, but anyway. It's it's interesting. I mean, it, I keep saying it's going to need a catastrophe to make people wake up to this. Yeah. And with the plastic in the oceans, the catastrophe wasn't so much people didn't recognize it. It was the fact that, you know, Sir David Attenborough, who is for anyone who's listening that's not in the UK, he's a kind of icon of you know environmental broadcasting. Uh, he's been doing it for decades on the BBC. Uh, really amazing, very well thought after. He's in his 90s now, incredible man in terms of, you know, the the love he has for the natural world and the natural environment. And he kind of picked up a few years ago on the whole issue of plastic in the oceans. 
And it really then started to impact people and people started to become more aware of it and think about it. And large companies, you know, the likes of Starbucks, et cetera, who were chucking plastic straws out like nothing on earth. And if you look at most of the pollutants in the world that are in the ocean, they're coming from about five or six different river systems, like the Ganges, for example, where people are just dumping stuff into the river and it's coming out of the river and it's just floating into the ocean and then washing up wherever. And they've found this on the most remote atolls in the middle of the Pacific, like literally islands of debris, of plastic, and obviously the harm to wildlife. And I think that really hit home when Attenborough picked up on it and did you know, a big TV series on it that focused on it and people went well this is really bad and i'm not going to go to starbucks anymore because they're using plastic straws and when it started hitting these companies in the bottom line then they said okay well we're going to make paper straws and we're going to do this and we're going to become more environmentally friendly and that's fantastic um that it had that impact and we only hope that some of the developing world countries the likes of china india etc really do latch onto this because we've got one planet this is it this is our one ball and there's already eight billion of us on it and we're already struggling with things like pandemics so we really don't want to mess it up anymore uh and the problem you've got with plastic in the oceans it, it drifts in the ocean at about four to five knots miles an hour kind of ballpark um that's great and you can see it and you can you can fish it up you can get nets you can do what but something 62 miles above your head or or higher in space traveling at eight kilometers a second you can't do anything about it. and most people don't care because they don't see it they don't know anything about it so it's not a problem the time when it becomes a problem for everybody is when all the communication stops when your entire defense system stops so you can't defend your nation because you've got no ships you've got no air cover you got nothing when your planes stop flying when you take your telecoms when your facebook as they said in gravity when north america loses facebook that's when people are going to care that's when things are going to get really bad and until that happens or god forbid i mean the worst possible case scenario is that people will die so we've got an increasing number of space tourists planned over the next 10, 15 years, you know, between Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. Okay, Blue Origin are suborbital, so they've got a few minutes in very low Earth orbit, um, not even in orbit, they just go up and down, but very low kind of space. Um, Virgin Galactic, a little bit higher, but it, within the next 10, 15 years, you're going to be having orbital space flights. You know, they're already talking about sending Tom Cruise to the International Space Station. Can you imagine Tom Cruise is on the ISS and it gets hit by a piece of debris and the ISS gets wiped out? That's not only $200 billion worth of space station the size of a football pitch. This is this is catastrophe. I mean, maybe not for Tom Cruise fans or what, I don't know, but this is a really bad thing. And then I saw some absolute bonkers idea of building this massive donut-shaped space hotel. It was like something out of 2001. And I just thought, why don't you just paint a big target on it and just be done with it? Because this thing's huge. And there's so much junk up there. What are they going to do? So good luck, everyone. Um, working in the space sector and working in space engineering, um, this is a nightmare. This is a real problem. Uh, and I can only encourage anyone listening or anyone who's remotely interested to start talking about it, because unless we all start talking about it, nobody's going to do anything about it. And as I said, hat tip to uh, the LCD team and Astroscale. Fantastic work that they're doing. And I know some of the people at Astroscale really admire them, really admire their achievement here, but it's not the answer. We need a much bigger answer. Anyway, moving on to our next story, and over to Terry. Right, back to our old friend Oumuamua. They, uh, it's a Hawaiian word for a scout or a messenger from afar. And it really hit the headlines when it was discovered in 2017, because it turned out to be the first object to enter our solar system from some other planetary system elsewhere in the universe. How do we know that? Two things, first of all, it was going far, far too fast. Uh, nothing in our own solar system would naturally move at that speed. And it was on a hyperbolic orbit, which means that it originated from outside our solar system. The interesting thing about it was it varied in brightness very, very considerably, which indicated that it was tumbling as it moved through space. Now, that's not unusual. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, spacecraft even can tumble. Some satellites do when we lose control of them. Uh, asteroids do. 
and so on. So that's not unusual, but the amount of the tumbling or the amount of variation in light as it tumbled indicated that it was a very unusual shape. The original estimate that was about 400 meters in length and about 35 meters in width, so it was cigar shaped. And it's very hard to uh, imagine how something like that could occur naturally. I'll come on to the size and dimensions again later. The other thing that was interesting was, while we didn't discover it until it had already passed the sun and it was heading back out into space again, it seemed to be accelerating faster than it should do. Now, uh, it shouldn't accelerate at all, but basically it was slowing down less than it should do under uh, just under gravity. So what could explain that? Well, if it was a comet, then comets can give off gas, which gives them a very, very slight acceleration. The thing was, this didn't look or behave like a comet at all. There was no sign of any outgassing whatsoever. Uh, asteroids are subject to other effects, but uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be anywhere near as significant as this, and certainly not for an object of that size and moving that quickly. So, of course, all sorts of theories sprung up. Uh, in particular, Avi Loeb from uh, Harvard uh, came up with the theory that it was part of an alien or a whole alien spacecraft, not one that was being sort of actively piloted, but um, perhaps a defunct satellite or something. And some of the propellant or fuel or whatever on board was outgassing, and that was what's causing this acceleration. As I said, it wasn't actually speeding up, but it wasn't slowing down as much as it should do as it uh, moved away from the sun. So obviously this was uh, exceedingly interesting and the media got onto it and there was a, a lot of speculation. But uh, most other astronomers basically thought that was the least likely, likely explanation. It's um, You go for the simplest and most uh, reasonable explanation, first of all, Occam's razor. Uh, is the principle. But nevertheless, there were things that needed to be explained. Was it an asteroid? Was it a comet? Why was it moving like that? Why was it tumbling so much? And why was it uh, um, speeding up? I'll use that term just for, for convenience. And nobody could really come up with a terribly satisfactory answer until now. What they did was they simulated what uh, materials it could be made of that could cause that effect and it wouldn't necessarily be visible. And they started by looking at the surface of Pluto and Triton, which is the, uh, the biggest moon of the second, well, the furthest planet in the solar system now since uh, Pluto has been demoted. And they seem to be covered with nitrogen ice. And when nitrogen ice sublimates, it can give you that acceleration effect, but it's not visible the way the normal gases from a comet are visible as it outgasses. And that's what causes the tail of a, of a comet as we normally look at it. So it would be perfectly reasonable if there's another solar system that the bodies at the outer edge of that solar system would have a similar composition, in other words, a large amount of, of nitrogen ice. And if there was a collision, a piece of that could be knocked off sent out of the uh, gravitational field of the parent star, travel through space, and then eventually simply come into our solar system. And all the simulations that they, they did uh, with how it would behave seemed to fit. And it also tends to um, explain the rather unusual shape. Uh, because nitrogen uh, ice sublimates, in other words, it turns from the solid directly into a gas without going through the liquid phase, it sublimates much more easily than water ice does. Uh, so it would be enough to give this uh, acceleration effect. And the interesting thing is that nitrogen outgassing would not be visible in the instruments that we had to study the subject. So it could very well have been outgassing nitrogen uh, from the, the, um, the ice directly into the gaseous state without us being able to detect it, and that would explain the behavior. Also, because nitrogen ice isn't quite as reflective as water ice, the object didn't have to be as big as we thought it was. Remember, we didn't actually see this. We were simply estimating its size from its brightness. So the original estimate was basically that it was the size of a big skyscraper. But since nitrogen uh, ice is uh, not as reflective, that means, the, or sorry, it's more reflective, that means it could be a lot smaller. So the latest estimate is that it might be only, I think of a note here, about 45 meters by 44 by seven and a half meters. So it's not so much cigar shaped as pancake, pancake shaped. And 
again, they estimate that as nitrogen ice would sublimate, it would gradually flatten into a pancake shape, a bit like uh, a bar of soap, whatever shape your bar of soap uh, starts off with, it ends up basically as a, a little flat uh, sliver. And that would explain uh, the shape and the, the acceleration of the object. So it seems very unlikely now that this is an alien uh, artifact of any sort. Sad news, everybody would love it to have been uh, actual proof of another alien civilization, but so far it doesn't look uh, very convincing. Yeah, some of the images look like the Millennium Falcon. I thought yeah. it was quite cool. <laughs> um, the other, the other thing, because I've done a lot of kind of work for years on comets and cometary studies, etc. Obviously, around about a light year or so away from the Earth, we've got the Oort cloud, and typically it's where our long period comets come from. So, you know, some of the some of the famous comets like Hellbop, etc., all believed to have originated in the Oort cloud. These like hundred thousand year orbits. Another idea, and I don't know if this one's been looked into with any kind of great detail, is that it got a kick in the Oort cloud. So that extremely high velocity could have come about from a collision kick that literally knocked it at such a in such a way that it gave it you know, the boost that possibly gave, ended up with that high velocity. I don't know um, the kind of extra galactic or you know other solar system idea i love because it kind of implies that you know as has been observed by the herschel that there are other Oort clouds around other star mm -hmm. systems and that we have got you know evidence of planetary formation obviously we know we've got hundreds of exoplanets around other star systems so if you've got hundreds of exoplanets and everything kind of forms in the same way uh, across the entire universe which you potentially should do then we've got rocky planets we've got gaseous planets and potentially cometary systems so yes it could have been knocked out either from our own Oort cloud with a high-velocity kick or, as is the, the kind of major speculation and major theory behind it, that it is uh, kind of an extra solar system or it's, it doesn't belong to us object. I love it anyway. It's really, really cool. I love the name. Um, Avi Loeb stuff, literally, I mean, this is a Harvard professor. So yeah. the, the guy's not stupid at all by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he's probably not done his career much good in sticking by this alien spacecraft idea. Um, I mean, at some point in the future, who knows? We may encounter another civilization. We don't know. We're not, we're not the only life in the universe. If we are, it's, you know, as Carl Sagan once said, it's a ridiculous waste of space. We're not the only life in the universe. There's 400 billion stars in our galaxy. There's 250 to 400 billion galaxies. You do the math, as they say. Um, if each one of those has even got one planet capable of hosting life or, or not, if it's one in a thousand, you know, you go to the Drake equation, there's lots of life out there. We may even find life, you know, on Mars, um, microbial life in the not too distant future. We don't know. But it's a cracking story. Although, Terry's next one is even better. <laughs> yeah, going for something which is very small on the astronomical scale and not all that massive either. We're going to the other extreme. Something that is the mass of three million suns, okay? Uh, I can quote 10 to the power 27 and so on, but that doesn't mean a lot to most people. This object, which is 230 million light years away in another galaxy, as I say, the mass of three million suns. And this is what it works out. 2,000 million, 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 million tons. Okay, that's the mass of the sun. The black hole is three million times that. That's not the biggest black hole we know. But the amazing thing about this one is it's moving through space at an incredible speed, 177,000 kilometers per hour. Now, that's relative to its own galaxy. It's, that's not its, its motion relative to, uh, to us because the galaxy itself will be moving relative to us. So the big question is, how on Earth, how in the universe, do you accelerate an object that mass of that mass to a speed of 177,000 kilometers per hour? It's like, as somebody said, you can kick a beach ball relatively easily. If you kick a, a bowling ball, you'll, you'll feel quite a considerable impact. And it's, it's very, very light in comparison. So something of that mass, how do you accelerate it to that speed? So there's two main theories at the moment. They're just theories. We basically have no idea. One is that it was a result of a merger of two black holes. And uh, because they, they're huge masses and they're coming together, 
it could call a sort of, cause a sort of a recoil effect, and it's that slinging it through the, the gravitational field of that galaxy. How do we know, by the way, that it's moving at that speed? You can't see it directly because it's a black hole, but they can detect uh, the emission of um, basically a, a spectrum from water vapor in the accretion disk that's surrounding the black hole. Uh, so that's the only way they were able to detect this one. Uh, the other thing is that it's actually one of a, a pair of black holes where one of them is visible because it has this uh, water in the accretion disk surrounding it, and that's what we can detect. But for some reason, the other one of the pair is not emitting like that, so uh, it's impossible to detect it. It's basically a maser, which is similar to a laser, but instead of light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, it's microwave amplification. So that's the difference with the maser. So they're detecting it basically by its maser emission. but. Neither of those to me seem incredibly uh, uh, convincing. Um, a merger should basically uh, be at the speed of the, um, the velocity of the, the more massive of the two objects, whatever it speed was going at originally, it sort of should take the other one that joined with it along. But how did it get moving so fast in the first place? And the other thing is, if it's one of a pair, we should be able to see gravitational lensing effect from the other one, which we can't detect any other way. Now, they've only just discovered this, so there there's, hasn't been time to look for gravitational lensing effects, but that would be one way to look for this other um, invisible supermassive black hole. But just again, consider, you know, we talk about a figure being astronomical, meaning it's very, very large. The speed is incredible, 177,000 kilometers per hour. The mass, three million times the mass of the sun. How does that, how does the universe do that? It's just mind blowing. It is. And you think about it. I mean, if people don't know, the sun isn't even a big star. No. In the grand scheme of things, yes, yeah, a uh, G2 series star, a uh, GTV series star, um, kind of middle-y or towards the low end. Um, our sun is a million times bigger than the Earth. You could swallow the Earth one million times in our sun. And then you've got a black hole, as Terry said, millions of times this, traveling at, you know, we're not talking about light speed velocities here. We're talking about you know, 177,000 kilometers per hour as opposed to 300,000 kilometers per second. But that's still going some. Um, that's it's just beyond comprehension. Um, what I think will be interesting with this is hopefully later this year, we're going to see the James Webb Space Telescope go up. Um, if it gets through all that debris, that is, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? You imagine if, if the Ariane launcher hit some debris on, on its transit up there or the James Webb hit some debris on its way out to its Lagrange point. But essentially, we're going to have some really sophisticated instrumentation very soon. You know, some of the largest sky survey telescopes being built on Earth, the ELT, etc. Uh, things like the Square Kilometre Array, again, if satellites don't pollute the entire radio frequency spectrum and, and knock out that, the ability to image to really high resolution objects like this and get a much better handle on what they're doing, I think is going to be really interesting in the coming years. The collision theory, could you imagine what the gravitational wave would have been yeah. <laughs> with this collision? I mean, this is the great thing. They Only in the last few years with the LIGO instrument and there's plans with the European Space Agency's LISA mission, uh, which is just incredible. I mean, the Basically, if you don't know, gravitational waves, this was theorized by Einstein and the theory of relativity, where essentially you've got this rippling effect uh, due to the curvature of space-time. And if you have two black holes or two supermassive objects which collide, essentially it's like dropping a pebble on a pond. You get this rippling effect through the universe. And the deviation on the ripple can be felt even millions or hundreds of millions of light years away from where the actual event occurred. So in the last few years with the LIGO instrument, which is a laser interferometer instrument um, based in the United States, they were able to, for the first time, detect one of these gravitational waves, and they've detected a few more since. What's happening now with the European Space Agency, they put up a thing, or they've got a mission called LISA Pathfinder and then LISA. Now, I don't want to kind of go on too much about this, but LISA is astonishing. Right, so what they're doing with the LISA spacecraft is they have two spacecraft separated by several million kilometers in space. Each of these spacecraft inside them have got beryllium cubes, so basically a metal cube. Okay, These cubes are polished down to atomic level kind of flatness. 
across each surface. They're, it's astonishing what they've done. I mean, it's literally uh, a deviation on the surface of it is, is literally atomic size. These are left to then free float inside the spacecraft. And what they do is they fire a laser beam between the two. Now, essentially, when you've got these two perfectly flat cubes, you've got a laser beam bouncing between the two. Any deviation in the space-time of, of the universe, as it were, this kind of uh, this gravitational wave effect, will cause a deviation in the laser beam, the reflection on the re on the laser beam. The analogy they gave me when I mean I used to for my sins a long time ago, uh, going back about ten years, I was contracted by the European Space Agency to work in science communication. It's one of the things I, I, I worked on and wrote about. Um, you know, working with the scientists to try and communicate the story of what was happening is really really fascinating. And talking to the, some of the project scientists, and, he, and the project scientists at the time said, the angle that we're looking at measuring is basically if you held up your pinky finger and put it on the surface of the moon. The angle would be the diameter of your pinky finger from the Earth to the moon. Right? And I'm like, oh, my God, this is incredible. They've now improved it to such a point that they reckon they can calculate the deviation angle of your hand to the nearest star, to Proxima Centauri. Now, that is <laughs> just what? Science is incredible. I, I just This is why... I kind of go for the engineering and the space engineering side of stories. Terry always comes out with these absolutely phenomenal stories that I just love, absolutely love. Uh, these just bizarre, amazing space stories that you think, how is that even possible? But there we go. Supermassive yep. black holes. If you want to right. see a black hole as well, 3C273 um, is an object that most backyard telescopes can can image. And oh, so Anyway, yes, Terry, sorry. Right. Yes, there's a question come in there uh, from uh, Robert. A mass of 30 million, actually 3 million, but still a heck of a lot. 3 million suns is incredible. How does the object maintain its integrity at that speed? Well, basically, it is so massive and so dense that it holds itself together. Uh, it doesn't matter how fast it's going. Uh, it, it, it's like the, the most dense object that you can imagine. That is basically what a, a black hole is. That's how it operates. It, it is so dense that not even life can escape from its gravitational field. So it will hold itself together simply by its own gravitational field. Another thing that it bumps into along the way, well, that's hard luck and whatever it bumps into. So uh, it's a, it's great. basically it's gravity that maintains it like that. And uh, the other thing is that this object is relatively nearby in terms of the universe, 230 million light years. That's in our local galactic supercluster. So, uh, you know, what we have is our own local group, which is basically the Milky Way and the Andromeda Galaxy and the Triangulum Galaxy and a few smaller ones. They're uh, more or less part of a, a bigger group called the Virgo Cluster. Uh, that's about 50 to 60 million light years away. And then it is part of a bigger local supercluster, which would extend out to where this particular galaxy is. But that's very nearby in terms of the size of the universe as a whole. So it should be possible to uh, uh, study this in a lot more detail. And if it, the event could have happened quite a, a while ago, if it was a merger and the gravitational waves would have passed us by. But uh, nevertheless, it's a fascinating idea to, to think about what, what that would actually have been like. Another great one, Robert, if you've not seen it um, on YouTube, there's videos of a time-lapse image uh, imaging the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. And it's quite incredible when you look at this, this video and you can see the stars orbiting essentially nothing. There's nothing there. And these stars are just kind of zipping around and looping around at you know, astonishing speeds around nothing so we know black holes are there we've you know there's been direct imaging of black holes now that beautiful image that you can hopefully see in the slide uh, which we pretty much first saw in, in the movie interstellar that kind of conceptual image of what a black hole looks like is really what they look like um so if you're really interested in this there's there's so much out there to to look into just don't watch the 1979 walt disney movie because it's terrible um called <laughs> the black hole if you've not seen it don't it's just if you've got kids who are under the age of six great but apart from that just don't watch it it's awful anyway moving on to our, our final story before uh, we do a, a bit of a look up as it were um Percy. So Perseverance has now been on the Martian surface and all the massive hullabaloo has kind of died down a little bit now and everyone's, you know, almost forgotten that, it, you know, 
did the most incredible landing for the second time ever and they hidden secret messages in the parachute and uh, the sky crane worked and everything's been completely nominal and perfect and they've been the sound i don't know if anyone uh, managed to listen to the sound that's been uh, broadcast now from the microphones it sounds like that thing needs some wd-40 it really needs a bit of a service it sounds like it it's clanking away in all the electronics it's it's fantastic just to hear a rover moving on the surface of another planet but this kind of struck me today. On the rover, on Perseverance itself, they have this small helicopter called Ingenuity. And essentially, this is kind of strapped to the bottom of the rover. Now, in the last week, they've dropped away the cover that kind of protects it as it was coming into, you know, coming into land, etc. And they've, they've pulled away the cover um, and they've dropped that on the ground. And there's some great images of that you can see there, one of them. And you can see Ingenuity underneath the cover. I was thinking about this today, thinking, right, so there's a one point whatever kilogram helicopter with four rotor blades that is strapped to the underside of an SUV sized rover that managed to land in the most complex way imaginable on another planet that's currently tens of millions of miles away from Earth. And what they're going to do is they're going to drive for a few days to their launch site drop the helicopter onto the surface and by drop it's basically it's at a 90 degree angle at the moment so it's going to have to drop down unfurl etc then the rover is going to drive away then this thing don't forget the light travel time you're looking at tens of minutes return light travel time so it's not like somebody is at jpl with a little like xbox controller going oh i'm gonna fly them i'm gonna this drone's got to do it all autonomously and the artificial intelligence systems you know have progressed so much that they can now get that level of complexity on another planet tens of millions of miles away to not only take off with multiple rotor blades in an atmosphere that is 100 times thinner than that that we have on the earth uh incredibly harsh radiation environment prone to dust storms that we all know and it's not like the martian it's not as you know that whole oh the spacecraft's going to tip over and the dust storms are going to do this no a dust storm and a really ferocious wind on mars would be like a breeze on earth uh that's the reality it's one of the big kind of misnomers in the movie the martian but it's really good fun uh, but this thing's going to take off it's going to fly around probably image the rover probably image its surroundings look at optimal rover tracks for the rover to spend the next however many years until its uh, rtg its nuclear power source runs out uh investigating and then land and it's got this whole landing site mapped out and almost like a, a fly zone and as it's it's a test if this is successful then the next thing probably going to Mars will be something far more sophisticated that should be able to venture over vast waves of the planet. And can you imagine flying through things like Valles Marineris, the Mariner Valley, which this thing's the size of the United States. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon is a tiddler. I've been to the Grand Canyon and it's just mind blowing to look at. But then the Mariner Valley, named after the Mariner spacecraft that discovered it in the late 1960s, early 1970s, Valles Marineris is absolutely gigantic. I mean, it's, it's literally the size of the US. Can you imagine a, a rover or a, sorry, a helo or a drone even just flying through that uh, autonomously and, and capturing images? And hopefully, not long after that, humans on the surface of Mars by the mid 2030s. Who knows? We've got plans. Obviously, the European Space Agency are following on this mission. This is going to be caching samples, the sample return plan to get samples back to the Earth by the early 2030s. NASA's plan is still to get human boots on the Mars, and SpaceX have got more ambitious plans by you know the 2030s. So all being well, touching wood, we're going to see something quite spectacular. But this is a real this is like watching Viking in 1976. Everyone going, oh wow, this is incredible. And Viking still to this day. That's a huge spacecraft landing on the surface of Mars. So for the early 1970s, with the computing power that they had, for the capabilities that NASA had to achieve both Viking 1 and Viking 2 on the surface of Mars and doing you know label release experiments that are still being discussed to this day as to whether or not there was life, is still quite incredible. Uh, and then Sojourner in the late 90s and breaking the internet with a fantastic little rover and Pathfinder, uh, and then Spirit and Opportunity, and then Curiosity we've had, and now Perseverance, and this flotilla of spacecraft orbiting Mars as well. It, you know, Musk goes on about colonizing Mars. Uh, no, don't agree. Um, don't think that's a good idea and or viable, possibly in however many lifetimes. I mean, at some stage in the future, possibly, yes. Uh, 
like to get a lot of scientists. Hopefully we'll see something like Antarctica at one point in the future where Mars is going to be, you know, a, an exploration base, much like the moon is hopefully going to be very soon. You know, we're going back to the moon with the Artemis program. Um, hopefully we're going to see more boots on the moon. It won't be 2024 now because that's all, you know, the budgets, et cetera, for that aren't, aren't realistic and they never were. But hopefully by the end of the decade, we are going to see another, another lunar landing uh, joint mission between the European Space Agency and NASA and, you know, lots of other, uh, groups involved, which is fantastic, you know, showing great collaboration. Again, if we can get out of low Earth orbit by this point, I mean, that's the other thing. It all, you know, if Kessler happens, that's all space exploration and science gone. So look forward to that. Um, but this, just when this happens, and it'll be happening over the Easter break, watch it because you're never going to see anything like this. I and mean, if it works, and again, touch wood, if it works, you will never see anything like this probably in your lifetime again uh, in terms of it being a first you know it's like apollo 11 the people who are fortunate enough mm. to have grown up in the 60s and saw the first lunar landing you know people got bored by apollo 12 i can't believe that myself but people did get bored in like, and then apollo 13 almost blows up and kills everyone uh and people got excited again but then 14 nobody cared and 15 you know less cared you know there's a rover people got a bit more interested hopefully this is going to really spark Again, an amazing interest in space exploration, seeing a helicopter flying on Mars. And don't forget the rover's got sophisticated high-definition video cameras, video camera capability as well. So not only is that helicopter going to be videoing what it's doing, the rover's going to be videoing the helicopter. So it's going to be crazy uh, and fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Robert has come in with a, another question there, a very valid one, because you were talking about a, a helicopter flying through Valles Marineris. I was thinking it would also be very nice to fly one up to the top of uh, Olympus Mons, the largest volcano. But in you're in space. <laughs> and and uh, fly around inside the caldera. And that, that volcano was many, many times bigger than any volcano on Earth. So he's asking basically how would it cope with the reduced altitude so the even thinner air up there. I It'd honestly don't yeah. <laughs> I don't think this one is capable of doing that, but this is a demonstrator yeah. and if it works, there's certainly no reason why they wouldn't be able to do that sometime in the future. So a very good question and a very, very fascinating prospect to get a, a close up aerial view inside the top of Olympus Mons. That would be amazing. I think the best way of doing Olympus Mons, uh, realistically, because if you don't know, Olympus Mons itself, I mean, its surface area is about the size of Arizona. Um, in terms of height, it's, as Terry said, multiple times the size of Everest. I mean, we're looking at something that's, I think, 25 kilometers high, uh, 25 to 30 kilometers high. Don't know the exact numbers without looking at it, but this thing, it, its top is in space relative to Mars's atmosphere. I mean, it's it's literally practically in space. Um, it's enormous part of the old Tharsis um, volcanic region on Mars, which, yeah, again, there's a whole thing of what's causing the methane on Mars. So I think a spacecraft landing in that cold era at some point in the future, the problem is the scientific return from that isn't as valuable, I guess, as looking for, you know, evidence of water and evidence of, you know, layered uh, depositional uh, artifacts and potentially microorganisms, fossilized microorganisms, which is why they're obviously at Jezero Crater. So I think at some point in the future, I mean, the, the great thing about Valles Marineris is the, you, the lower you go down, the more dense the atmosphere gets. Mm -hmm. So the potential for flying something there is a lot greater. I think if you were going to send something to Olympus Mons or any of the, the, the Mons, the volcanoes on Mars, you'd need something like the Apollo Lunar Module as a drone. You'd need something that has rocket capability, as it were, that it could go up to high altitudes, that it could autonomously go over the lip of Olympus Mons, that it would have sufficient fuel to fly those kind of distances. Um, could be nuclear propulsion in the future. Who knows? There could be any number of propulsion systems. You know, with, you know, science is still progressing at such a pace now. And this is the great thing about, I think, the time we live in. In that, unless you grew up in the late 1950s, early 1960s, you've never seen anything like this. Put a Sabre engine. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, <coughs> yeah, the uh, so if you don't know what the Sabre engine, this is a reaction engine. It's a British company uh, with their Skylon aircraft, and they're looking at an air-breathing engine that can basically go from, like, take off on a conventional runway into orbit. Need a lot of air to do that, and obviously the compression systems that they're using and the supercooling systems that they're using, all of that would be null and void on Mars. Uh, it's a nice idea. The only problem with Sabre, Robert, as you probably know, is that the runway length, there isn't even a runway in the UK big enough for a Skylon to take off on. So, yeah, um, 
think it through. Um, I was talking to uh, a friend who used to work for um, the UK Space Agency today, and he was saying about, you know, thinking it through and kind of doing your due diligence before you, you step off the ledge, as it were. Um, I think NASA do, and I think to a large extent, I'm seeing some great stuff coming out of ESA now. Jacks are doing some great stuff as well. Um, Roscosmos, obviously, one of the most consistent launch vehicles in the world. So um, we shall see. And don't forget, in the summer, Tianwen-1 is going to drop its lander and its rover onto the surface of Mars. And again, fingers crossed if that works, and we all hope it does, you know, observations of what's happening in China with the political situation aside, their science teams are brilliant. And the UAE are taking even better images yeah, literally by every week when they're changing their orbit uh, of their spacecraft orbiting Mars at the moment. So uh, there's a lot going on. Mars is so fascinating. It, it's the subject of a, a really good show I was listening to a few nights ago with a dear friend of mine, Mark McGochran from uh, the European Space Agency. And he was chatting away about Mars with uh, a few other people. And it was just, it is, it's a fascinating, fascinating world um definitely anyway so we're we're running a little bit low on time uh our hour is nearly up um i'm gonna hand over to terry for what's up in space right uh four things i'll mention three of them and keep the, the last best one to the last first of all there's a nova in cassiopeia the constellation cassiopeia near the border with perseus uh, you're probably going to need binoculars to see it or a, a telescope uh, me trying to describe the position to you will mean nothing. You basically need to look it up on the internet, get a star map uh, and find it. And Nova is basically a star, not a new star, which is what the name implies, but it is a star that has gone undergone a significant explosion, not as big as a supernova, and increases in brightness by a factor of thousands to tens of thousands. And uh, whereas it was formerly a very, very faint star, it suddenly becomes bright enough to be seen. They occasionally get bright enough to be seen with the naked eye. The last one that did that well, easily visible as the naked eye, was 1970 in Cygnus. Uh, we haven't had a, another really good one since, but that's interesting to see. The Lyrid meteors, one of the main meteor showers of the year, they will reach maximum on the night of the 21st to the 22nd of April. Unfortunately, there's a bit of interference from moonlight, but never mind, you still see quite a few. And uh, the brightest of the asteroids, not the largest, but the brightest, is Vesta. And that's pretty well placed at the moment. Again, you'll need to look something up, heavens above, or an app on your smartphone or something to find out exactly where it is. But in exceptionally good conditions with exceptional eyesight, you can just see it with the naked eye. I've managed it once or twice, but only really when it's been at its best and in a very, very dark site and knowing where to, to look. And finally, the best of all in terms of what you can see with the naked eye is the International Space Station, which is doing a series of evening passes over the UK and Ireland up until about the 6th of April. Some very, very good ones at the moment. 17,500 miles an hour, an object the size of a football field, continually, I'll say man just for convenience, forgive me any ladies who are listening, you know what I mean, continually crude maybe is better, the, the best way to put it. And it goes around the earth basically once every 90 minutes. A lot of people ask, why is it not visible all the time? You can see it sometimes for a period of a couple of weeks and then it disappears again. Are they changing the orbit? And the answer is no. To a, a degree of simplification, the orbit is more or less fixed in space relative to the stars or relative to the sun, although it has to change its orientation so that the solar panels are uh, continually pointing at the sun. But what's happening is it is going round and round and round in more or less the same orbit, but the Earth is spinning underneath that orbit. So it's the Earth that is moving relative to the International Space Station in terms of how it, it uh, uh, passes over a different part of the Earth each, each time. Basically, every 90 minutes, uh, the Earth rotates 15 degrees every hour, so it's 15 degrees plus 7.5 degrees. Every orbit, the Earth has rotated by that amount between successive orbits. So you see it for uh, a while while the orbits are, are taking over the uh, part of the Earth where you live, when the sun is shining on it just after sunset or just before sunrise, and then basically everything has shifted so much that it's only visible in some other part of the world. But the orbit is basically more or less the same with minor tweaks all the time. It's the Earth that is rotating underneath it. Fantastic. On that subject, actually, it's, it's a, going kind of back to films. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the movie Gravity is 90 minutes, because that's an Earth orbit um, in terms of duration. Um, 
Somebody's mentioned in the chat, and it's a, it's a very good point. Um, we were talking about Apollo before and the, the lunar module and the, the whole concept. Um, it's worth noting that this week, uh, NASA and the world lost one of the true greats of Apollo. And uh, this one hit me quite hard, actually, because Glenn I've met a few times, um, and I know many of his colleagues really well, um, people who work with him. And um, speaking to them earlier this week, um, people like Cy Liebergott, uh, Chuck Dietrich, um, Jerry Griffin, etc., you know, fellow flight directors and controllers. The warmth and the affection in which that man was held is quite incredible. And if you've watched the Disney uh, recreation of the right stuff, Glenn Lenny's there from literally from day one. He was taken on by Chris Craft of the initial space task group, etc., um, and is generally regarded as one of the most brilliant flight directors um, you could possibly imagine. Um, if you've seen the movie Apollo 13, he features a little bit as an actor called Mark McClure plays him. Um, and he's, he's not really in the film very much. He's in it a, a little bit, which is a real shame because, you know, talking to Chuck and Cy and the various people who were there on Apollo 13, who were actually there, not pretended to be there, like certain people I can mention, but were actually there on Apollo 13 and, and did such incredible work, you know, between Chuck and Jerry Bostick calculating the free return trajectory, etc. A lot of the credit <coughs> for Apollo 13 goes to Gene Krantz. And obviously, Gene Krantz wrote the book, Failure is Not an Option, uh, which is a misquote, wasn't ever words that, were, that came out of his mouth. But it's a great strap line. It was used in the film. And the Tom Hanks film is absolutely brilliant. And they, they got so much right. They got a few things wrong. Jack Swagger wasn't an incompetent pilot. He was a brilliant pilot. Um, but Glenn Lunny's role, Glenn Lunny did so much on Apollo 13. He he literally worked out a lot of the lifeboat procedure or you know, orchestrated a lot of the lifeboat procedures and was a real steady hand throughout his entire career at NASA. And that went from Mercury through Gemini, through Apollo. Um, real legend um, in the spaceflight community. And I, for one, you know, will raise a glass. Uh, I did raise a glass and I'm going to raise another glass. Uh, and next time you look at the moon, just think of people like that. We're losing more and more of our heroes literally every day, every week. And this pandemic's taken a few as well. And we've lost astronauts. We've lost flight directors, flight controllers, <laughs> lots of people. Um, you know, these are the last people who remember the greatest technical achievement in human history. So we mustn't let their memory or their name ever slip from us. Um, so Glenn Lunny, wherever you are, if you're up there with the rest of them, um, I hope you're looking down and just realizing how much love you had and still will have, you know, until everybody forgets about Apollo in a thousand years or whatever uh, from the entire space community. It was, he, he was a remarkable, remarkable human being. On that slightly sad note, but um, it was a great summary on the look up, look up for Lenovo, definitely. Um, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break over Easter because everyone zoomed out. We've been a year now in lockdown. I got my jab the other day. Yay! Um, and I'll get my next one in about 10 weeks. I think you've probably had yours, Terry. I've had my first one still waiting Yay! for the second. <laughs> so we're all getting very excited about actually being able to meet up, uh, hopefully in the late summer. So... Uh, and do a show together, actually in the same room, which would be really quite cool, maybe from the Harwell yeah, yeah. campus. Um, but just to say, again, a massive, massive thank you to our incredible friends and hosts at Space Store. Um, they are just brilliant. Uh, they have been so supportive of our little radio show here, um, where we have, I think it's 417 uh, subscribers now, which is really great. And we have, you know, a few dozen or however many people, 100 or whatever, watching us live, and then people watching us on catch-ups. That's always wonderful. Um, hopefully the Space Store itself, which is in Didcot, We'll be opening up in some capacity uh, in the coming months. So please, please visit them. Uh, great bunch of people. They've got some great fun stuff. Um, great for kids in particular. Um, and we're just really looking forward to being able to possibly do this like together. Uh, so I love going over to Ireland. Terry knows that. And there's events like Skellig and uh, Queen's University in Belfast. And you know, the whole of Belfast is amazing. So uh, and Terry knows he's always welcome over this side of the aisle if, he can, get, if he can get in with Brexit. Um, <laughs> Don't start. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to charge import duty on Terry. Um, but seriously, uh, thank you to everyone who's interacting on the chat, everyone who listens. Uh, we really, really do appreciate it. It's it's a humble little thing. We're not going to change the world. Uh, we're not twerking. We're not getting a, a gazillion views because we changed our lipstick on Instagram. Um, but it's a fun little thing and we're going to come back on well latch is going to confirm this but may the fourth be with you 
is when we're coming back. So we're having a little break over Easter because we all need it and we're all going to spend time with our families and stuff. And uh, we hope to see you all again very soon. Uh, watch some of the back episodes because they're just as much fun as this. We're all, you know, just we love what we do. Uh, Terry, any words? Just Star Wars Day. What could be a better time to come back? Uh, just to <laughs> echo what you're saying about Glenn there. Um, while Apollo 11, the first moon landing, is the one that will go down in history, in many ways, Apollo 13 was a greater achievement because they dealt with a catastrophe, with the unexpected. Apollo 11 went more or less like clockwork, minor problems. Apollo 13, it could hardly have gone more wrong and, and have them survive. They brought it to an amazingly brilliant, successful conclusion. So that was fantastic. So cheerio, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Space Roundup podcast. You can tune in live to hear from Nick and Terry and be part of the Q&A every other Tuesday at 7.30pm on youtube.com forward slash space door live. Whilst you're there, catch up with season one of the Space Roundup and lots more. Like what you heard today, why not support us by visiting our website spacedoor.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.